0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Twenty Six Point One Podcast. Today we have David Law. He is a senior data scientist at MavenWave Partners, an Atos company. He's a colleague of mine, and just a wonderful person. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great.
1: Thanks for having me. Welcome, David. Welcome to the show. David,
0: uh, how did you end up here? What is your just real briefly for the audience? What's your background, and how did you end up on the podcast?
1: So, uh, my education was in material science. I, I did research in, um, semiconductor materials and ended up, uh, at a research company in Houston in just doing experiments, uh, on callous and, uh, realized quickly that wasn't really quite the career I wanted to have. So I ended up tr- transitioning into doing more data analysis, data warehousing, on uh, you know, found out about data science. Ended up doing my master's at Northwestern, and uh, that brought me to uh, the position at Mavenwave to be a consultant in data science. And uh, since then, it's been it's been on up uphill.
2: Now, when I think of semiconductors in Texas, I think more of North Central Texas. How, how are you doing that in Houston?
1: Oh, so I actually didn't do semiconductors in Texas. So okay. my under, undergraduate research at Cornell was doing semiconductor research. So one of the projects I was working on was in conjunction with Corning for materials that go into the touchscreen displays on iPads. And so I ended up not being able to find a position in the semiconductor field right out of college. So I ended up moving to Houston because I had family there and then switched a little bit into just doing actually research in the uh, specialty chemicals. So it was creation of catalysts for oil refineries to help them target specific diesel or gasoline or other products from the refining process.
2: My experience with my material science friends is they're not particularly computational. Is is that something new? Is it changing?
1: Uh, I think it it, it probably depends on uh, your specialization. Uh, I mean, what do you mean by computational? Maybe you can sort of
2: yeah, I mean, I don't know if any of them could write HTML for a website, for example.
1: Ah, well, I don't know, because I, I actually did take a uh, a course in creating websites during my undergraduate, <laughs> uh, so maybe I'm a bit of a, an odd one, but <laughs> funny you should say that.
2: You did take a course making websites undergrad at Cornell, but wonder if that's more in an indication of Cornell as an Ivy and it's focused on liberal arts that you get a wider range of curriculum than many programs where people may study material science.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I did, I think for my own experience going through a data science program or sorry, the material science program, I did try to branch out and get more into the computational side. So like I said, there was, I had a course doing making websites. I actually had some side projects at the time where I was building a, a website which would scrape other websites and pull together some statistics. And uh, aside from that, I also took a course in computational science using a lot of MATLAB to do uh, scientific processing computing, and then also had quite a bit of heavy statistics in my electives as well. So I think that it ended up preparing me well for a transition into data science.
2: And are you still using a lot of MATLAB, or what are your chosen tools now?
1: Not these days. In my position in Houston, I ended up using a lot of R for data analysis. And then since moving into a more formal data science role, it's pretty much been mostly Python.
0: Well, you know, and uh, we had to dabble a little bit in R in our consulting jobs, too, and I, um, I wrote that article on R versus Python, but I'd love to hear your perspectives, David. Is there a language of dominance in the AI world, and is it truly Python, or is there some competitors coming in?
1: Uh, from what I've seen in terms of trends right now, I think it's it's still Python is sort of leading the industry in terms of data science and AI. There's, as far as if you look at uh, popular uh, you know, state-of-the-art research coming out, Usually it comes to Python first and then eventually ported over to R. So not to say that there's not a lot of good stuff that comes from the R community as well, definitely came out of doing a lot of statistical analysis with R packages. There's a lot of things which if you're going into heavy statistics are more convenient using R packages than what you would find in Python. So there's definitely good reasons to use either of them, but uh, as far as just the pure volume of open source projects, uh, I think it's definitely leaning towards Python.
0: You are the author of a up and coming Python package called Data Describe, uh, and I know or I already know what it's about. But tell the audience and tell Don Shu what it's about.
1: Excited to hear. Yeah, Data Describe is a new open source Python package that we're working on for exploratory data analysis. It's something that we, Brian and myself and my colleagues at Maven Wave, have worked on. And we are preparing to bring it to an open beta release later this year. And the reason why we wanted to build a new package for DataDescribe is that right now there are a lot of different packages that people use to create visualizations, to do uh, different snippets of analysis. But what ends up in practice is that you end up having these little snippets of code that you end up rewriting over and over again in your notebooks to really do that exploratory data analysis. And there isn't really one standard that people use to just do the whole process like you would for building models with scikit-learn, with TensorFlow. And so we wanted to really fill that gap to be able to build up a framework where people don't have to learn four, five, six different packages just to be able to analyze their data.
2: Current current contributors, are they all colleagues? Yes, they are. And the project's on GitHub already and publicly readable
1: or yeah right now we have a repo on github it's currently still private uh, but we're targeting to um, make it public in uh, next month or two
2: so what do we need to do to help you publicize it in terms of
0: have a podcast on we need you
2: twitter announcement (laughs) i mean what's going on what can we do to help here at 26.1 ai podcast
1: yeah i think just getting the word out there Um, you know, it's still in it, in its infancy right now, I I would say, and, uh, we've had a lot of, uh, very passionate discussions about, you know, what's, what's the vision for this, uh, what's the scope, like how, how specialized should these tools be, this analysis be, uh, so right now we're doing some, uh, beta testing internally to gather feedback, but I think definitely what, what we really want to do is make something that the community. Uh, is useful to the community and that everybody would want to use so i think we we would definitely appreciate you know the people to uh jump in and give us feedback uh when we make it public and and we we just really want to build a great package that you know makes it easier to Don, this package is
0: going to be in one year maybe a year and a half from now it'll be on every single data scientist's repository that'll be in every VM for deep learning. It'll be just the backing for all the exploration.
2: I, I believe it. I mean, fundamentally the one thing that really makes me believe it is anybody who writes code is inherently <laughs> lazy in <laughs> some so way. <laughs> and why, why it has continued this way where people are writing little snippets of code over and over again is Nobody's had the the drive to be systematic or structured about it. Yeah,
0: and I believe the challenge here is also just the complexity of all the underlying packages and how they interact with each other, but not just lazy, but we're also very curious in, in data science. So what sort of things have you discovered either in the data by using this package or just discovered within yourself by having the challenge of putting this package together, David?
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely still quite a bit of growth in, in terms of visualization packages. So even if when we did a survey of, you know, what people were using currently in their notebooks and Kaggle and GitHub, you know, there's a mix of matplotlib, Seaborn, Plotly, Bokeh. There's just so many different visualization. I'll tear. Uh, yeah. I, I couldn't possibly list them all. There's a new one popping up every single day if
2: we put up the logos it would look like a nascar yeah, a nascar
1: line yeah like
2: competitor right yeah, that okay. was a
1: lot. Yeah. absolutely so trying to trying to get from your data to if you need to do some transformations or other analysis on it and then trying to determine which plotting library you want to use whether you want interactivity or not how you want to get just if you want to just have reasonable nice looking defaults that you can put into a report there's a lot of code that you need to add in there, or you need to learn a different way of doing things. So I think that's one of the big things that we learned when starting to build Data Describe. The next thing is really just about trying to elevate the level of EDA in the data science community. Uh, not to say that you know we have you know the best way to do it, but a lot of the times you have people sort of, when they're getting into, Learning how to do data science, learning how to analyze data—it's coming back to same things over and over again. Where it's, you know, okay, we check the distributions, we look at, you know, correlations, uh, we look at, you know, missing values and things like that. Uh, but going beyond that and applying some of the uh, more recent advances in AI, machine learning, we can also use things like transfer learning models to. Better describe, uh, produce embeddings or clusters of analysis or of your data. We can process text data, which is something that a lot of people have done here and there, but not really in a systematic fashion as well. And so, being able to open up that uh, all of those fields of people who, you know, they just bring their data, and if they know they have some free-form text fields, to be able to just analyze that without. Having to go through and start from the beginning of learning how to preprocess your text, how to tokenize it, how to clean it up, how to uh, create uh, use embeddings, things like that. Uh, being able to elevate everybody to immediately start in analyzing their data in um, using all of these new different tools that are coming out.
2: And you mentioned EDA, maybe let's explicitly define that for everybody. I- I'm assuming that you mean exploratory data analysis.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So I'm talking about, when I say EDA exploratory data analysis, I'm talking about that part of the process where you have a new data set, you don't know what's really in there. You don't know if there are outliers. You don't know what are the different patterns that you look out that you should look out for EDA is the process of getting a better understanding of that data because you can't just throw any data at your model and just always expect it to work. So... Uh, It's really important to get a good idea of the landscape of your data so that you can do better feature engineering to create new features. You can make sure to catch any things that might trip up your algorithm that you're using. So it's really important to look through your data. And sometimes that's a matter of just putting on a plot. And sometimes it might be something a little bit more complicated to transform it or enrich it or uh, do other things of the data to really extract out important insights in that data.
2: Also, early on, you mentioned how nascent data su- decide is, right? But I want to call on Brian to share what Jupyter or IPython looked like at its first public demo. Brian, you sure. Yeah, sure.
0: I'm... I mean, we were sitting around Chicago Python user group, and John Hunter was friends with Fernando Perez. And I, I believe Fernando Perez might have wrote the IPython interface first, or someone that he knew. But through that relationship, he showed us a shell come up and it was colored. And we were like, wow, this is colorful. And that was like the the amazing feature for us is a Python shell that had color. And then he started showing us some magic features and that eventually developed into being a notebook, which ended up becoming rebranded as Jupiter, which was Julia, Python, R, and I forget the other one. um, Maybe you remember. But there was supposed to be several language support, which eventually got there. Um, and now you just see it everywhere. I mean, just pretty much notebooks are in our de- every data science tool, tool set now. And I, and I can see why. You know, First, I was not buying into it. I thought, oh, yeah, I should be writing everything in a IDE or in a and Vim and Emacs was back in the day. But now these are kind of become de facto. And it's interesting to me. Uh, and I presume you use notebooks, David, some, and what, what is your experiences with, with them?
1: Yeah, I love using notebooks. I think a lot of what we do in data describe is sort of based off of the idea that the exploratory data analysis is going to happen in a notebook. And I think having that visual interactivity with your code is really important to having quick iterations of trying different things of looking at your data and a lot of what we've been starting to build with Data Describe wouldn't have been possible without having notebooks. So it's really great to have it.
2: So when do we set up the demo tour for like Travis Oliphant, Carol Willing, Pierre Wong, Fernando Perez, so they can get promoting You know, this? Literally
0: our last episode, we didn't have this in the recording and we haven't published it yet, but with the professor at UW said, you guys should really have Fernando Perez on the show. <laughs> and I agree. But man, if we start, I would be afraid of the response because this project's in its infancy. If we start promoting on that level, could you imagine the traffic that this project would get? We would have to, we could barely keep up with it, I think.
2: You want contributors.
0: No, we do. And we're we're talking about a successful launch here. Um, And we've talked on this podcast about this all the time. It's a noisy space. It's a challenging space because of the noise. And we want to reduce the noise. The package, I think, reduces noise in some way. But I mean, that's kind of the goal of it. But we're going to enter back into this noisy world of data science. Um, and have you experienced that, David? What is your experiences with the the bubble, the buzz factor of data science, and AI, and ML? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd well, totally I mean, are you question. impacted by it? Do you see, you now you're you are a true data scientist, and I, you know, I work with you every day, and I know that. Um, but there's a lot of hype out there about the industry in general. Are you impacted by that at all? Uh,
1: I, I think that yeah, there, there's a lot of hype, and I I like to think that I'm not totally swayed by just uh, just hype without substance. Um, I, I try to keep myself up to date with. Uh, the, Trends in AI and try to parse through what's just, um, you know, a headline for clicks versus something that could really transform the industry. And not to say that I have all the answers, but you know, try to keep it real. And I think that's part of one of the important parts of being consultant is sort of translating the news that's coming out into what can what can we really use to help people and to make their lives easier with AI and ML.
0: Bravo to that. And I like to always ask the precautionary story of, is there is there a downside? Is there something that could go wrong in society because of artificial intelligence? Is there any risk there? Besides Facebook? <laughs> yeah,
1: I think so for sure. And I think AI and ML is a tool and there's, you can use tools for, for good reasons, for bad reasons. And especially when we don't really have, a lot of people don't really have clear insight into how all of it works. And especially with all of the hype, it sort of just becomes like magic, something that just happens. And so it's it can be really easy for people to use these for, let's say, nefarious reasons. And it's, it's important to make sure that we're using AI and ml responsibly
2: earlier you'd mentioned keeping track of what's real that's developing in ml and analytics are there maybe three go-to sources for news for you
1: I, I don't think I have I've found a single source of that I use for for news um, but I do keep track of the the main research blogs from Google, OpenAI, and and the like. I also read a lot from Medium and Reddit, just from what people are actually using or trying out. And I usually trace back to the original GitHub repositories or papers to try to better understand the topics. So usually try to listen to multiple sources and try to piece together what what the what the news is.
2: And, and I'm going to provide some cover for the both of you. That this is wholly my spontaneous idea. How long before we have the David Law Brian Ray startup coming out of Data's Decide?
0: Well, we got you got to get the name right. It's Data Decide, and okay. I don't know. You know, this is an open source project, but you know, speaking with our friend Timothy Lewis, I, I connected with him. He's in Berlin now, um, about you know, the ecosystem of cryptocurrencies and other things going on like that and the governance around it, there's some serious funding coming the way to open source, you know? And we know Peter Wong himself has created quite an ecosystem with Travis as well about funding these things. But I don't think our objective is to get rich off of it. At least mine isn't. I I just want to create a democratized tool that's useful personally.
2: Well, I, I think it's the example of the Databricks founders. When they started out with Spark, all they cared about was impact. These are researchers and professors at Cal, right? And for any project to be sustainable in this world, you need money. And why not create an open source based startup that's widely successful where you're able to have impact and invest back towards into open source? For example, um, there's a startup, Notable.io, Michelle Uford, who led up um, machine learning at Netflix. They launched in May. As far as I can tell, digging through the info, Wing VC wrote them a $4 million check, and they just formed up as a company. They're, as far as I know, they don't have any product. It's their track record and what they've done, what they know the market
0: needs. I like where you're going with this, but I think that we're going to keep it free and open I don't own the project, David Law does, but it's really up to him. I'd love to get backing for it, but I think the whole problem with some of these commercializations of software have destroyed languages. I think Java at one point was hindered by it in other languages like that, and the reason Python has done so well is it's never adhering to some sort of corporation.
2: Well, Python's anarchy, right? Particularly since Guido has retired. There's a steering council. However, it's it's just going along, but, you know, it's not being about just ruining something. Java is a very old example that came out of Sun, and then, I mean, that's one of the original open-source projects. I mean, I I think it's tough to compare that to what's going on now.
0: Yeah. So, David, any thoughts on on any of this? (laughs) Do you want to be rich by Data Describe?
1: Well, I certainly wouldn't say no to getting rich by Data Describe. That's a nice dream to have, I would say, but I feel I'm a little bit skeptical about monetization of open source projects. It seems to me as a trend that monetization of open source projects is tends to be inversely proportional to the level of reach that they get to. When you start building a closed wall garden around your open source project, then it becomes difficult to really make it something that people feel comfortable to rely on. And so there's sort of like put that push and pull of trying to extract money out of your users versus making it free and open to for everybody to use and to contribute to. And I think there are some people who've been able to make it work, but I think it's pretty difficult to sort of, you know, serve both masters of both open source and making money off of it.
2: Yeah, there, there's a lot of work going on right now on open source business models where I'm of the opinion that we're at a point where in some sense, in startup speak, you have product market fit and a strategy that works that doesn't betray the early contributors or or the community. Databricks is probably kind of the prototype in, in my mind. Currently, there's probably a lot of other examples I'm missing. But in 2018, for example, there was $27 billion of exits from companies coming out of open source, GitHub was one notably last went public, I believe. MuleSoft was bought by Salesforce. Um, even, I think, Suze Linux had another kind of exit, even though they'd IPO a decade ago or something like that. So there, there's some opinions about this. Wes McKinney, the creator of Pandas, he's uh, talked about open source and how to truly fund it as have successful startups.
0: I think that... Um... The ones that have done the most success are the ones tied to these corporate. And Databricks's relationship with Microsoft was undeniable. And we had Denny. We had Denny Lee on. Uh, so, David, what is your projection? Give us fast forward five years from now. What is what is data science going to look like in ML? I stumped him.
2: I, I'm voting for flying cars. That, that way the existing self driving models can work because the risks uh, are, are collisions are less risky.
1: Yeah, I'd certainly like i certainly like to see uh, self driving cars in four to five years. I don't know if I've been one in four to five years, but coming from coming from Houston you see some pretty crazy <laughs> would
0: drivers. Be, would you be skeptical about getting into one a self driving car?
1: I think it's it's all a measure of risk. So I, I'd be comfortable getting to into one in a controlled setting, but you know, if I had to use it as a day-to-day commute in Houston, uh, I I would have some, I'd probably like to see it play out for, you know, a couple more years first to, to, you know, see what the fatality rate is for self-driving cars.
0: I have heard that like when something goes wrong in that space, it'll be thematic. It'll be, everything goes wrong at once.
2: Well it's how we frame things as well right human beings are pretty poor drivers we'll tolerate a human being getting into an accident and killing a family of four but if a tesla does it then that's that's the end of that industry right nobody's gonna go well we're gonna stop building cars nobody's gonna ride in a car anymore because this family of four died
1: yeah strangely enough and i I don't know if this is a strange take to have but i would feel more comfortable taking a self-driving car if everybody was in a self-driving car. Absolutely. Compared to being a self-driving car with human drivers on a road.
2: Well, at that point, you have a coordinated system.
0: Yeah. So you think it's robotics are less able to adjust to the uncertain than humans?
1: I think that it's probably, to me, it boils down to more of there's a, I think there's a fundamental change that needs to come in how we uh, consider commute and the requirement of people to drive their own cars and have their own autonomy to get from point A to point B and making a self-driving car instead of having everything coordinated is sort of like solving for the short-term problem rather than more of a something that's like more far-reaching
2: yeah this has been
1: fun David
0: let's do uh, yeah so any leave-behinds anything you want to leave the audience anywhere to contact you or find you if they wish to or anything
1: we'll be at Maven Wave doing great stuff with Brian and uh, you know always always having great fun just you know being able to do all of these really interesting projects with AI. And it's really interesting how you can um, really transform the workplace with even sometimes models that aren't you know, necessarily state-of-the-art.
0: All right, guys. Well, i got to get running. Uh, thanks, David, for being on the show. Thank you, Don.
2: Great meeting you, David. Well, thanks. Had a
1: great time.